welcome to another bite size of Bonjour Chai, the It's Jacques Cartier Right This Way edition. I'm Avi Feinwald in Montreal, and today I'll be bringing you an interview with entertainment manager Jake Gold. But first, let me remind you that our show is sponsored by Atelier Lou Jewelers in Westmount, Quebec, and online at atelierlou.com. I can never get enough of their selection of watches or jewelry, whether you're a serious watch collector or you're getting your first real watch and you enjoy whatever selection they have, they have something for you. Eric and his team can find something for any wrist. There's always offering, as always, our listeners 10% off online with the code BONE18, B-O-N-18. That's B-O-N-18 at atelierlou.com for your watch and jewelry needs. Jake Gold has been an integral part of the Canadian music scene as the manager of musical acts and producers since 1985. Along with Alan Gregg, Jake has managed bands like The Pursuit of Happiness, The Watchman, Adam Cohen, and of course the tragically hip. Jake joins us for a special Canada Day discussion about music, menches, and management. So, Jake... Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. There's been many, many years of you in uh, Canadian entertainment business. Uh, I want to start with one that might be a little lesser known, uh, The Watchman. Sure. Two Jewish kids from Winnipeg. Three? Uh, three, that's right. Yes. I mean, we always think of them as the core, uh, you know, Joey and Danny, whatever. But, no, uh, but Danny. Danny. Absolutely. So, how, like, this was 10, 15 years before... Matis Yahoo makes it as like a Jewish figure on a major label. They're identifiably Jewish. Like what's, tell me, tell me how this all starts and, and, and where this goes. It wasn't, it had, didn't have anything to do with the fact that they were Jewish. I was, I was, uh, I was the manager of the Tragically Hip, um, still am uh, today. Um, and uh, they were, they were being represented by an agent named Ralph James from, who was from Winnipeg. And Ralph, knew my tastes in music and it said to me, you should come uh, take a look at these guys. And we kind of danced for almost a year until finally I went, okay, I think they're ready. And then I signed them, but it didn't have anything to do with them being Jewish or no, not. No, but what I mean is for for myself, like somebody, I loved their music and identified with it, um, yeah. as a, you know, and as a, as an identifiably Jewish kid in the nineties to see, you know, these, these figures that were, you know, not shying away from that, but were all still very much in the mainstream, you know, that was a big deal for me. Yeah, I, I guess it was. I never noticed them sort of wearing their Jewishness on their sleeve. No, but they never shied away from it. No, well, no, but I don't think it was ever brought into, I mean, you know, Max Kerman from the Arkells is Jewish too, right? You That's know, true. it's like, Very true. you know, like the list is endless well, when you think. Now that. the list is endless. No, come but, on. It know. started with Bob Dylan. Like, let's, let's go all the way back, right? So who, who, who was there in Canadian rock in the 90s? Uh, for a Jewish teenager to like really be like, uh, you know what? There's probably a lot more that we think if we decide to go through the list, but that's probably true. You know, there's, there's probably a lot more than you think. I knew a lot of Jewish musicians growing up in Toronto. So maybe in Montreal, it was different. I don't know. You're in Montreal, right? There were. Yeah. I'm in Montreal. Yeah. But I don't think they actually wore their, wore it uh, uh, on their sleeve. I remember um, having to f- fly. They, they, uh, Unlike um, 
some other artists, I mean, I know that they never talked about not performing on Yom Kippur or not performing on those dates. But when we were doing their tour schedule, I was always conscious of it, right? Where I would be like, well, let's not, you know, let's not play that night. Yeah. And and I would just assume that they, but, but, they, but they never came out and literally said to me, oh, we're not playing on those nights. We're not playing on the Sabbath, like Netanyahu won't... Uh, Matis Yahoo. Matis Yahoo. Yahoo. Yeah, he won't play on the Sabbath, right? Uh, now, now he will. Oh, now he will. So, okay. Because yeah. <laughs> someone said to him you the know, best nights of the week for gigs are Fridays and Saturdays. <laughs> so you should know, but even that is a big deal because, you know, I remember a moment when I was at the Jazz Fest, the Montreal Jazz Fest, and I ran across... Uh, uh, Andre Simard, uh, Andre Menard, sorry, and uh, yeah, yeah, I know Simard, yeah, yeah, I know Andre, and well. and and I said, you know, every time I see an Israeli jazz artist or I see John Zorn play, he's always playing on Friday night. You know, you got to pay attention to the fact that it's the one time of the year when we have these Jewish artists coming through town. Don't book them on Friday night for the Jews that want to go to the gig. And he goes, oh, I never thought of that. And then he makes a note to his assistants to make sure that we stop booking right the Israelis and 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 Zorn and people like John Zorn, people like that on on Friday nights. And and just that sensitivity in and of itself is, is a big deal. So, you know, we have to thank you and, 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 and things like that in that way. Yeah, I mean, we were I was conscious of it, um, but I was only conscious of it because I was Jewish. OK, mm -hmm. if I wasn't Jewish, I probably wouldn't be conscious of it because it's amazing how many things I'm involved with, where there's a board meeting called or something like that. And I have to say, well, I can't make it that day because it's Yom Kippur. And the other people on the board are Jewish, and they're all like, "Oh, oh, right, yeah," because it's not on their radar. It's not. It doesn't sit in your Apple calendar like Thanksgiving does, or any of the other holidays. You know. Well, I'm a rabbi, so it sits in my calendar too. <laughs> but that's no, but you put it different. in your calendar. I put it in. That's yeah. what I'm saying. It's not an automatic like Family Day and Thanksgiving and Christmas Day and all those days are actually in the Apple calendar, but they don't put yeah. all the other holidays. Right. So absolutely. Yeah. So where else did it come into your uh, did, did your Jewishness affect any of the other work that you were doing just in general? Did it come up? You know, it's, it's Jewish funny. acts that you were thinking about. No, no, it wasn't that. It was funny because I was having this. I had a, this similar kind of discussion recently where I I, I noticed that historically in the in the American music industry, um, it's predominantly Jews and Italians and always was like at the higher levels um you know the entrepreneurial entrepreneurs but in the in canada it wasn't always like that and there's like maybe a handful of jewish guys that you can count on that were at the upper levels of the industry in canada and hardly any at record companies mm -hmm. canada was a different thing for for jews but there's significant amount of uh, I, let's just say we we punched well above our weight when it came to you know Sam Feldman, successful guy, sure. Bernie Ruben Finkelstein, Fogel. Ruben Fogel, Bernie Finkelstein. Well, forget about the concert promoters because Michael Cole and Arthur Fogel and all all of those sure. guys, Norman Perry, all of them are all Jewish guys, right? I think out of the whole group, only Donald K. Donald wasn't. Right. He just wanted yeah. to be, you know, um, <laughs> and, and he was the one that you would deal with. Right. The hip was always going. Through no, the no. We worked with no? Ruben. Ruben was okay. my guy from day one. Um, I still remember the concert at the Spectrum. Sorry for, for breaking 90, in. 1993. And uh, no, it was 95. And the 
t- the album was released that morning and the concert was that night and they announced it on Shom and your ticket was a Polaroid picture. Oh yeah, that was scalp that, it. Was, the, that was the special event show. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you that was scalp your ticket. It was actually 96. It was 96. Yeah, that's right. I was in Sejep. I was in Dawson was, College. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was 96. Uh, I remember that cuz I came up with that idea the scalpers hated me. Brilliant. Brilliant idea. Yeah, yeah the scalpers hated me for that. Um, Anyways. So so yeah, so um, it wasn't, uh, but you know, Bernie Finkelstein, Sam Feldman, myself, Eric at Coalition, uh, Steve Waxman, who worked at Warner for many years, but it's a handful of people. But was there this awareness amongst you guys that, you know, this is who you guys were? You had this crew of Jewish, like, nah, not never, really. No, no, nah, it was never like that. Um, Interesting. And, and because I, people used to think I was just American because, <laughs> you know, I, you know, but but I, I was born there, but they would they would. But I was raised in Toronto. I moved to Toronto when I was two. But um, my mother was from the Lower East Side. Yeah. So she was very coffee talk. You know, that was she was like old school, you know, Lower East Side, New York yeah. Jew. So, oh, I, get um, it. I married but, an American. My kids are American. I brought them back 10 years ago. So, uh, right. So same idea. Um, but no, it wasn't. It wasn't. I don't I don't really run into it. I think the, I think the entertainment industry historically had a lot of Jews in it. I mean, we kind of started the movie business. Right. And if you think about the guys who started the, the record business way back when it was mostly Jewish guys that started the record. business yeah. too. Right? All of that. So I think we uh, we always punched above our weight, I guess, back to what I said earlier, because it was the nature of the beast. I think it's because it was an entrepreneurial business and Chess it wasn't a, something you went to school all, for. All those you people. Yeah, it, yeah, sure. You know, sure. And the arts in general. Right. The arts in general. You know, people think I changed my name like, you know, I was maybe I was oh, fine. Yeah. Or something. People um, <laughs> only wish they could be called fine. But I, <laughs> yes, yes. But, but I never changed my name. Right. I never yeah. did. So. Um, so, you know, going to the hip now, you, you mentioned that you were, you know, that was where your, your big, big break where you started and everything was, you know, where everything launched from there. I, I always saw the band, I mean, Gore Downey in particular, but the band as a whole as like because they were so fundamentally democratic. Um, and so, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, to me that the spirituality they had, the literateness and the activist streak that they always had really resonated with me as a Jew. Right. In addition to it being resonating mm-hmm. as, as, as a, you know, some of the, the greatest music, you know, ever put down on record. Mm-hmm. Was there ever, you know, not not to think of them as Jews or as Jewish, um, but what was like, what was their spiritual life like? Because you don't you read a lot about their activism. You read a lot about, you know, the, the literateness that that Gord brought to the lyrics. Um, but, you know, you don't get the sense of what the soul of them who. Not religion necessarily, but spirituality. Well, I think I think overall, but you know, it's funny. It was it's never talked about. Interesting. Like none of that stuff's talked about. Like we just act. Just do. Just do. You know, yeah. like even even, even his, historically, if you look at how they always, I mean, they just got the humanitarian award at the Junos, and one of the reasons they got it was because. Um, even when they did give, that we always had a rule like no press conferences, no presentations of checks. We're not doing those kinds of things, right? Like it was always not, it, it wasn't, um, 
it wasn't like like we would say we're doing this concert for this charity, but we would never announce how much we gave or anything because that wasn't the whole point for doing it, right? And the money just came along with it. So so it wasn't that they did it anonymously, but they didn't want the spotlight for what they already did. They wanted the spotlight for what they were doing. Mm -hmm. As an inspiration to others and to, to move it forward. Right. Two, yeah. two, two very different things. Sure. Right? For sure. So so is that spiritual? I don't know. You know, I don't know if that's a spiritual thing. I don't know. Um, uh, or is it just uh, just being good people? You know, they, they all came from pretty well, pretty good families, you know. Um, they didn't, they, they weren't like from the bad side of the tracks per se. Yeah. You know, Johnny's father was a heart surgeon. <laughs> Robbie's father was a was a judge, right? Uh, Gord St. Clair's father was the dean of medicine at Queens. Like, you know. I, I think there's something fundamentally spiritual about wanting to do good in this world and not even wanting to, to get the credit for it. Saying that, you know, we are altruists. We want, we want this to be good. That, yeah. that is to me, you know, deep spirituality. Saying that it's about that, or or is it, or is it just being a good human being? It's two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I mean, you can say it's spiritual, and I'll let you call it spiritual if you want, or is it just being a yeah. good person, and that's just part of being a good human being and a good person in society. My my sure my my brief my brief stint as a pulpit rabbi, I uh, I actually gave a sermon based on the. Uh, the last concert where the, the only thing that Gord ever Gord, Gord spoke the whole night, right? There, there was no, there was singing and that was it. And the only thing that he spoke when he, on it, and he knew that this was his last show and he could have said goodbye. He could have said whatever he could have said. And all he said was he called on the prime minister, right? Right. To, to, to honor his commitments. Right. Um, which, which we have seen that the prime minister has, has really not necessarily gone forward in that. And, People of listeners of this podcast have uh, have heard me say that multiple times already, but that's a different discussion. But that's um, and I thought that that was brilliant. This this idea of collective responsibility and collective uh, uh, apologies. Yeah, and and I will tell you, it wasn't um, it wasn't premeditated either, though. Okay. Yeah. It just if if you saw the humanitarian award pack and it's on YouTube, there's a cut of Gord saying. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not going to pat myself on the back for it. He goes, it, yeah, it just that, happened. But that's that's sometimes the best poetry and the he, best. He, he was in the he was in the he was in the moment, which is how he always was when he hit the stage. I mean, it's funny because over the years, I would say to him um, sometimes before he'd go on stage, I said, "Can you thank the radio station? You know, who presented the show?" And I would be like, it "Would always fall on deaf ears, not because he wasn't listening to me." Is because the moment he hit that stage, he was in the moment. And he, he wasn't, you know, unless I had a sign on the floor in front of him. And even then, maybe, yeah, I, he wouldn't say it. So everything was in the moment with him. Everything was, it was, it was, um, it was motivated by the, what was happening at the time. Yeah, that's interesting, because I don't even think that I noticed that until the, the later half of their career, because, you know, 
seeing them in Canada, I it's a whole different ballgame than seeing them in the U.S. Where I, you know you'd be here and you'd see them in huge venues, and so you, the, the the ability to get close to the band really wasn't the same thing. And I had and mm-hmm. and you don't really feel it. But then as soon as I started seeing them in the U.S., when I saw them in Boston on the World Container Tour, I saw them for Plan A in Chicago, and and uh, maybe even one more time after that, um, and. And then you're just sitting in these 500 seat venues because that's that's what they're selling in the states, and you're so yeah, much closer. No, mean, yeah. it was just I was so much closer. So you're you're seeing this artist in in like a totally different environment. Well, if you'd seen them early in their career, like the Spectrum, then you would. When you I know, saw them at the Spectrum, and, 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 I was and, and, in the way back. Uh, but still, it was only a thousand people in the Spectrum. Yeah, but but no, I mean that's the other thing. That's the misnomer that I think too many people have is the band. The band played, we played shows as big as 5,000 people in Chicago. We, you know, we did, we broke the record for the most nights in a row at the House of Blues in Chicago. We, in LA, they played, you know, two nights at 2,000 people. We go to London and sell 5,000 tickets. So I just remember that, that seeing them, the years that I was in the U.S. was 2004 to 2013 and seeing any Canadian band in the U.S. was a, the biggest blessing because all of a sudden right. the intimacy that you were able to achieve um, with the bands, you know, Sam Roberts with a hundred people in the band. And this is like after four albums, right? Yeah. But, but the hip was, was, was another example that I'm just using it as an, to illustrate that like, right. I saw, like I was catching, I was catching handkerchiefs. I was that close and, and, and I still have them to this day. Um, and you can see this person just, you know, in a different world by himself and really creating in the moment. And then, yeah, of course, screw the radio station, you know, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm an artist. I'm doing something transcendental, like really like transcendent. Well, and, that, transcendent. and that's what it was. And, and, and I think you would probably try and associate that with some sort of spirituality. And, and I'm a spiritual person. I'm not a religious person, but I'm a spiritual person. Um, I would associate that with, um, in, in, in Gord's case with the music moved him. You know, he, the music. I'm okay with that. I don't think everybody has to be my brand of spirituality. I think everybody's way of doing things is their own way. And that's, that's, I, I honor that. I'm not interested in, you know, pigeonholing. I'm just saying that there is something really that as a religious person, one can identify with that and see it and say, wow, that's something there. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because the term is used, but people would say seeing the hip was a religious experience. Yeah. They would say that because it was because it affected them spiritually. I yeah, think. I, I would add to that also the fact that you were in a room with there were no casual hip fans. Right. And you were no. in the room and everybody knew every single lyric to every single song. Like like I, I'm a huge Springsteen fan. It's the same sort of idea. Right. When you're on the floor. I had a talk with a guy from New Jersey on Saturday afternoon about the exact same thing. He's a giant Springsteen fan and he's a giant hip fan and and we had the exact same conversation and when you try and explain to Americans what the hip means to Canadians I always say the closest thing and it still doesn't even come close but the closest thing is what Springsteen means to New Jersey so you bring up yeah I yes I I can't possibly agree more. And I think that that feeling is what adds to that religious experience, that idea that you're, you're doing it in a, in, a, in a group with other like-minded people. So let me ask you a question, and maybe you can give me an answer. Please. Why is it that so many Jews like Springsteen, even though he's not Jewish, 
like the hip and like the Grateful Dead and those kinds of bands. Why is it? I think it's because they're bands that are, I mean, shooting from the hip here, no pun intended. Um, I think it's the, it's that exact thing. It's a, it's a combination of, of, mu- of music and lyrics that really um, speak to something spiritual and, and reach for something a little bit higher. Um, but also that they are, they're all experiences. They are 360 degree experiences. I don't care that Madonna makes a 360 degree package, right? With Live Aid or Jay-Z or whoever else makes those 360. To me, a 360 degree package is about a band saying that when you're part of this, you're really part of this. You want a picture of, you know, Gord on your wall, which I do. It's just not on this wall. Um, it, because, because it means something bigger than just a singer, right? It's not just, you know, Vince Neil, to, to use a great recent example of somebody who is not a spiritual individual necessarily, right? right. Or, or, or any other, even looking at the bands today, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of bands that don't necessarily have that. They make you feel great hours and hours after you walk away from the show that make you want to have an after party with random people just to connect with, right? Because you're, you can't not talk about what just happened, right? That to me is Jews identify with that, right? It's like going to synagogue and going to the Kiddush and wanting to talk about the rabbi sermon, some people, right? And, or just complaining about it or whatever it might be, right? Obsessively, there are certain artists and certain bands that allow you to obsessively pour over, right? The, the, the oeuvre as, as a whole and, and the hip is definitely one of those. So, so it's funny because all of those bands did it unconsciously. They just did it. Sure. Whereas then you take Kanye West, who's trying to actually create a church of Kanye West, which seems to be much more of a... To literally a a Sunday service that he includes into that 360 degreeness. Which which to me comes off as disingenuous in some ways. Yeah, I think it speaks to a different generation and a different... uh, What speaks to different people, right? It's, It's for a different mentality and a different mindset and i'm not gonna I, I can knock it in 17 different ways but i'm not going to right now no because it's not about religion but yeah no but it's not no, about but, no my point was is all the bands we talked we just talked about um did it um in a very unconscious non-deliberate way they they just did their thing and they made the experience feel that way as opposed yeah. to calling it that which seems yeah, it just it was organic. It just it right. evolved into that, and it just that that's how it that was. was that was me with Peter Gabriel. I can see that Peter's, you know, he's Peter's a spiritual guy in that in in, totally, in the same sort of vein. Totally, yeah. So let, let's work, let's work on you for a bit for a second here, because you have the whole. The, it's a great story. The seventeen years off, seventeen years on, seventeen years on, seventeen years off, and now another going to be another seventeen years, right? Robbie, Robbie from the band reminded me. Um, the beginning of June, because it was like one year to the day I started again, and he's, it was June 8th, and he says, uh, well, 16 more years. There you go. So just to, to set the stage, you came in after the work of Saskadelphia, right? This no, new, no, I, new EP no, came no, out, no. Or you were part of it? No, I started a year ago. So, yes, that's right. Sorry, yes. No, I, I, that's what I, I meant. I, you came in right around. This is like your, the first big project that they've put out post this. Well, and Gord Downey's solo project, yes. which was Away is Mine, which came beautiful, out last year. Beautiful, beautiful yeah. album. All of, that, all of that was me getting back involved. And, and it culminates to me with this unbelievable, like, tear-inducing performance with Feist and the, and, and the rest of the band and the Junos, mm-hmm. which if you haven't seen it, you absolutely have to go see it. It's really, um, 
really, really transcendent, really something else. Um, well, it's funny. I had a conversation with my friend, Jack Ross, who's an agent. He's, he's the Arkell's agent. Mm -hmm. He's Sam Roberts' agent. Um, we were having, because he was over here watching the Junos with me and with Johnny Fay from, from the band. And he said, you know, what made it really special is, is Leslie didn't try and make it about her. Yeah, because that was the whole band was about that. Right. And, and she understood their mentality. And that's why they were so hesitant to do it historic over the, because, you know, I had been talking to them about it for six months until I brought up Leslie as an option. That's oh, when they all went, yes, we could see that working because they knew she wouldn't make it about her. Will there be, will there be other, other performances in the future, even one-offs? Come on, help us out here. Give us a little bit of <laughs> nothing, 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 nothing that I know of. Um, listen, um, you never know, right? Like, uh, I will say that they're they're now at a point where they basically say never say never. Good. So could there be could there be another situation like this? Could there be um, there's obviously tons and tons of things being proposed to us. Um We'll know it when it's right, you know. As um, as Brian May said in the, um, did you see the documentary of Adam Lambert and Queen? Yeah, yeah. As Brian May said, we weren't looking for a singer; he just appeared. Yeah, I hear that. So, so going back to that, I, I've been I was thinking about it for a long time, actually. This, this. Are you, gonna, are you, giving, you, me, do? Are you gonna give me singer ideas? I'm not gonna give you singer ideas. I'm gonna give you work to do. Okay. Okay. Um, I thought about this for a lot because you're coming in to do the work of what one does. What does one do? And everybody's asked this question in the media, and I think that there's an answer here in some way. Right? What does one do when you're managing something which was no longer going to be creating anything? Right? Your entire work is going to be in the other things, the, the, the back catalog, the, um, the archives, various other things related mm -hmm. to this, right? And the analogy that I came up with that, th that hit me in my mind was that when the temple was destroyed, the second temple is destroyed in, in Jerusalem, this is the year 70 CE, and the rabbis, particularly one rabbi in, in particular, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, he goes and realizes that we can't have this religion go on without a temple. What are we going to do? And, and he makes this shift and he says, look, right, we have this text, but this text is going to die if we don't have a temple. What do we do? He makes the temple into a bunch of temples. He says, don't think about praying where you go to services at the temple and you hear worship, right? You hear this, you see the sacrifices being done and then you go home and you don't do anything, right? You have to do the work yourself and you have to do it in your right. private synagogues. You go from being a spectator to being active. You go from knowing that the texts are out there and rabbis are learning it to you learning the text yourself. And he says this enables him all of a sudden and enables Judaism to go and move things forward and say, we are going to be migratory. We can live anywhere as long as we have synagogues for people to congregate and texts for people to study. And that enabled people to live for 2000 years without a temple. Right. So he was brilliant in that way. And it's exactly the challenge that you have. What do you do when there's a fixed canon of work and there's no more work being made Right? So the work becomes taking the people and making them realize exactly what we had said before, that everybody was part of a hip concert because everybody felt that part of that community, right? Mm -hmm. Is the archives and the texts, the extended work right, that we have, 
right, is what keeps the, the faith alive, reminding the community of the fans, right, that Gort can't do the work, that we have to do that work now. Right. Whether it's the activism of, you know, that Gordon would have absolutely been carrying on to this day if he was around for Indigenous rights and all of these, you know, everything surrounding that to reminding people what it means to be part of a community of music, of music lovers around this specific text of musics, right, that are not um, that are no longer going to be performed necessarily or not on a regular basis and are not going to be created anew. So we have to create that and, and extend that to people saying, you listen to the hip at home, you listen to it with friends, that is your religious work. That is the work of extending the community. Well, it's interesting you say that because we, we take um, the responsibility of managing this, this archive mm-hmm. and, and these 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 things the name very seriously um we don't we don't take it lightly and we understand what it means to people and and even before we were putting out um saskadelphia you know it was put out as a surprise release but there were certain people we obviously had to include in the discussions before it was coming out and and when i would have a discussion with with a partner let's say someone that was going to be working with us on a, you know, a launch of something or whatever. Um, we would always, we would always, uh, I would always preface it. First of all, we made everyone sign NDAs, but, but we, when we finally told them why they were on this call like this or something like this, and because we would make them sign an NDA and they didn't know what they were signing an NDA for. And then we would reveal what we were doing. And the ones that would respond with things like, oh, we're making history was when I knew we were working with the right people because they understood the gravitas of what we were doing and also the responsibility because because of, you know, it, it, uh, I don't mean to come off as high and mighty, but, you know, when you have those kinds of fans, you have a responsibility to those people. Right. And and if you and if you want them to continue to participate, then you have to make sure that you're respecting. Them. Yeah, absolutely. Give them- that was like one of, one of the things from the beginning. We always our strategy from the beginning, my partner, Alan and I, when we first started working with the band in 86 was we said right from day one, it was going to be a fan first strategy that radio and record companies and. TV people and all of those people came second and fans came first. It's, that it's, was you're using them. It's not using the fans to get close to the radio. It's you're using the radio and the internet and the TikTok and all of that to get to, to, to make the fans closer to the music and the band. No, no, but actually, actually, Abby, it's the other way around, right? It's the other way around because what we felt is that we built a constituency. I think we're saying the same thing. Big I think enough. we're saying the same thing. I'm saying that we're using the radio and the to- they're the tools. The fans are the end product. They're the real thing. No, no, right, right. They are the pipe. We would refer to them as they're the pipeline, right? But, but from our strategy standpoint, what we said was if we build the constituency, then all the media outlets cannot hurt us. They can't, even if they write bad things about us, it won't matter. And radio will have to play us whether they like it or not, because the audience that we built on our own will be too big for them to ignore. So we always went after the people first and let them do our job for us in a lot of ways. 
because radio used to do things like call out research. So they would call and say, have you heard of this song? They say, I don't know the song, but I know the band. And it was always also not a song strategy. It was a band strategy. It was always about the band. It was never about one individual track or one individual concert or anything like that. So that was, that was what we were doing. Because relationships don't die. And they built relationships. It's relational, um, you know, music making, right? It's, it's, I'm making something as an artist for myself, but I know that I have a fan that is doing that. It's not about it being radio friendly. It, and once you establish those relationships, right, once you create what we call, you know, in the, the, the rabbi world or in the Jewish world where the nonprofit, the relational work that is being done, then that stuff, you said you can't just walk away from it because somebody says, I don't want to walk away from it. I like it. I want to keep it going. And, and, and that's when they want more, then when they want the archives, they want to gather still. They, we should be making, right, and there, should, there are specific days in the hip calendar, right? You said that the Jewish calendar doesn't show up, but I can assure you that every hip fan, right, watches that concert the night on the anniversary of, you know, August 19th. And August 20th. Know, 20th, sorry, that's what I meant. August 20th, people watch it, right? And people watch, you know, and people will celebrate birthdays and people, well, people will know when, when things Gord, come when out. passed away October 17th. Okay, I have a question for you. I want to talk to you about this since you're a rabbi and you understand numerology and Kabbalah, right? I've seen all of your pieces in the numerology. Go for it. Tell, every, tell all our fans. I, I saw you wrote it up somewhere already. No, I think I was discussing with someone, but I don't think it ever made it into the newspaper. I think maybe Bill, my friend Karen wrote it for FYI. I think she may have. That sounds like that's yeah, maybe Karen Bliss. Yeah, I do my work. A Jewish I my writer. <laughs> right? So, so you tell me. So there's some strange stuff happening. So I'm 17 years, 17 years off, right? So <laughs> seven and one is eight. So we know what eight is. In Kabbalah, right? What's eight in Kabbalah? It's uh, it's 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 the it's the first of the th the upper realms. But it's supposed to be the most spiritual, outerworldly number. That's what I've read, right? Because sure. eight days of Hanukkah, like all of the sort of things that weren't supposed to happen but happened, were. Uh, it's the otherworldly, exactly. The otherworldly yeah. numbers. My birthday is four four, mm -hmm. which is eight, right? So all of these eights kept coming up when I took over the band. I also re-signed the band on June the 8th. So I'm a rationalist. <laughs> I'm not huge on these things. I'm a, I'm a rational. I'm a rationalist I'll throw it back too, to you like this in a very specific thing. And with this, we can, uh, you know, we can start thinking about. The, uh, no, no, I have to tell you one more please, thing, please, though, that ahead. ties yeah. into this. Okay. So last year on uh, June the 30th, the night before Canada Day, we did a broadcast with Sirius XM, you know, mm -hmm. that hip have their own channel on Sirius called the Tragically Hip Radio. And it was the first time the guys had gotten back together to do an interview. And we did it to sort of kick off Canada Day. And I'm listening to it. And they're talking about Gord. And I had decided I was going to put some cream cheese on a bagel. Okay. And they're starting to talk about Gord. And I pull the cream cheese out of the fridge. And uh, I, like you do when you take something that's specially a, a dairy product out of the fridge, you look at the expiration date. And as they're talking about Gord, I pull up the, ex the cream cheese and I look at the expiration date. And what does it say but October 17th? Wow. The day Gord died, 17th. Okay, and remember in Fiddler's Green, he says yes. September 17th, which was the day his nephew died. 
So obviously I'm listening to the band and I turn this over and I've already gone through this 17 business for the last three weeks. And then I see this, which is why I kept this thing here. No, look, I think that, you know, in all seriousness, I think that, you know, as a rationalist, I say there's always coincidences and you'll find coincidences wherever they have happen. I have one that I can think back, you know, that it just hits me now that I remember. What year did Silent Radar come out from The Watchmen? Silent Radar... I know 98, 99. 98. Came yes. out in 98. And the last song on that album is called Brighter Hell, right? Right. And it's a beautiful, beautiful song, really elegiac, really, you know, sad, moving. And I remember it just got on my Walkman the September 12th. And I passed by a shop when they still had TV sets in the shops and they were showing footage from the day before. 2001 September 12th 2001 right. and he hits on the lyric what would you say falling from a building and I've never been able to see any footage of September 11th 2001 without thinking about making a montage to that song which it's funny because they put out a but 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 that's a but that's a coincidence right <laughs> I wouldn't go and say that that's God speaking and people say there are no coincidences exactly so it's either you believe in coincidences or you don't um, yeah, sorry, you were saying. Well, it's, it's funny It's funny you say that because they had a record coming out um, in late uh, September that same year, a new record in 2001. Mm-hmm. Slow motion. And yeah, and I was living in New York during 9-11. I was there. I was in Manhattan when it all went down. And I remember I had to fly to Winnipeg for the launch of the record in, at the end of September. Um, and I didn't know if I was going to be able to fly. Like none of us knew. Well, I managed to fly, but we had, uh, I flew in a day early and we had a day off before the show to launch the record. We were doing like a a show, you know, Mm -hmm. and that day off was Yom Kippur. And I went to synagogue with Joey and his dad, Max on Yom Kippur, because I happened to be in town. I said, well, maybe I should go to synagogue. And he said, yeah, you'll come with us. Well, the 20th anniversary of September 11th is coming up. And there's your idea. The band can uh, do a do a music video for a 20 year old song in a meaningful way, maybe, hopefully or not. Pass it along. (laughs) I'll I'll let. uh, Have you talked to Sam? Have you ever talked to Sammy? I have never spoken to any of them. I think I've seen them live in concert twice um, because they didn't they didn't do a lot of Montreal. You should do your podcast with Sammy. He's a musicologist. First, we'll get him on. Absolutely, I'd be happy. I'd be happy to make the intro. I talked to I talked to Sammy more than anybody else in the band. We we absolutely should. We'll we'll get him on. So this this episode's coming out on Canada Day. Um, We'll close up with that. I want to ask you spontaneously now. Um, what is your most Canadian Jewish moment, whether in the industry or with the hip or with the Watchmen or with Adam Cohen or with any of these wonderful individuals? Is there a moment that really encapsulates the Canadian Jewish experience for you um, as, a, as somebody who's been in the industry for so long? It's funny you, you say that. I think it's funny because um, I never th- thought of it that way. I never did. I never thought of, you know, a sort of a Jewish moment in the industry, because as I said, there weren't a lot of Jews in the industry. And when you do find one, it's like, oh, you're Jewish in the industry. It's like it's like that kind of thing. Although when I managed Adam, I what I always found interesting was I stayed. I always stayed at the house on Valier, you know, Mm -hmm. Leonard's house. And that's where 
that's where I'm I, looking right now. I'm looking right now across the street at the synagogue at the Shar Shemaim synagogue. Right. So, so, so I, so I would stay at the house with Adam all the time whenever, uh, and I was in Montreal a lot and we would stay there and him and I furnished the place because we used to have the whole band say So him and I went shopping along Saint Laurent and all those furniture stores to buy beds and this. So everybody, mm -hmm. and we made it nice. We made it nice because Leonard liked it, you know, austere. He didn't want anything in there. Right. But there was always this one picture um, of uh, Leonard's great-grandfather. Of course. And his grandfather, the rabbis. Yes. All sitting around this room. It's a famous picture. And yes. it was always in the front hall of the house when you walked in on this little table below the mirror, the mirror that was there when you first walked in. And the, the picture always sat there. And it was always a reminder of where you were. When you came Beautiful into the moment, house. absolutely. Yeah, and then it closes out with Adam wanting to bring the choir back in. Well, and also working end. with working with uh, the the cantor, the cantor and the choir, who are very good friends of mine. And uh, like I said, it's our synagogue. Yeah. But Adam, Adam never. I don't think Adam ever saw himself as very religious. Um, but he 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 definitely understood his um, his his kind of duty. I mean, because Leonard wasn't religious, but he was from a line of pretty famous Absolutely. rabbis. And, Absolutely. and he literally, he basically was, you want to talk about a spiritual person, he, he literally was a rabbi without being a rabbi. I'd call him a rabbi. Right? I'd call him a rabbi. Absolutely. Right? Because he spoke... What, who else but a rabbi would say, and I heard this, that uh, this was in the final weeks of his life, right? He was told that... Bob Dylan had won the Nobel Prize for literature. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard what his response was, but he uh, he said something along the lines of, "That's like putting a medal, pinning a medal to Mount Everest for being the highest mountain." Mm -hmm. Right, and that 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 to me just profundity. But yeah, anyways, Jake, this has been an honor and a and a pleasure. Thanks for sharing all of these the, the stories, the wisdom. Um, it's been really an honor. Thank you again, and uh, we hope to see you again soon. Thank you, Abby. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for Thursday, July 1st, Canada Day. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice and let us know what you think about our discussions on the CJN Lounge on Facebook. As always, I'm Avi Feingold, and I'll see you next time. I'm Ellen Besner. I'm the host of the CJN Daily Podcast. It's a bite-sized daily look at news that's important to Canadian Jews at home and around the world. Our episodes are about 10 minutes long. I want to invite you to tune in because we've got a fascinating interview out now with Canadian billionaire and philanthropist Charles Bronfman. He just turned 90 years old. And if you haven't heard of him, he co-founded the Birthright Program. That gives Jewish kids free trips to Israel. 
And now he's worried about the rise of anti-Semitism and hatred of Israel, and especially about how it's all been made worse by the recent hostilities between Israel and Hamas. It really let the genie out of the bottle. The genie was in the bottle. And one of the people I can blame for this whole mess is Donald Trump. The CJN Daily. It's what Jewish Canada sounds like.